Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not proclaim, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the Word of God, and now let's ask that He'll help us to glean from it this morning. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word, how precious it is to us. We pray now that you'd help us to understand it, that you would instruct us by it, that we would see your ways once again as altogether good and lovely. Lord, help us expose to us where we have sinned, where we have fallen into unbelief or have mistaken, and teach us the way that is right. Lord, we know that your word used by your spirit is profitable for this, so we trust that you'll do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we began last Lord's Day to retrace some of Paul's steps that he had taken back in chapter 1 as he began to address the problem of division in the church in Corinth centering around preaching and preachers. Now just to fasten that in your minds again, let's, let's look at chapter 1 verses 10 to 12. This is establishing the whole purpose for all that he's saying. He said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or, I follow Christ. They, they had divided up into these factions around particular teachers. The Corinthians had merely Christianized the habits of their society by elevating themselves over one another using preaching and preachers as the step stool. Who's your favorite preacher? Who's your favorite preacher? Well, here's my favorite preacher. Well, this one excels here. Yeah, but he's wrong here. I, I like this man because he's right here. But yeah, he does have some issues here and so on and so forth. That, that had caused divisions in the church. So as chapter 2 opens, Paul has come full circle back to this subject of preaching and preachers, pressing the same point that he's been making the entire time. But now he's using his own ministry. He's, he's sort of turned the, the cameras back upon himself or the mirrors upon himself, drawing the attention to his own ministry. And he's, what he's basically trying to prove is that this kind of dividing over preachers is silly. At, at worst, what he's saying is this is contrary to the fundamental principles of Christian religion. This is not how Christianity works. If, if you do this, it doesn't matter what you feel anywhere else. It doesn't matter what you know anywhere else. It doesn't matter what tingling you might have in, in private in, in, in reading your Bible by yourself. You don't understand Christianity if you act this way. That's what he's saying. This is, this is the foolishness of the world brought into the church. It's contrary to the Christian religion. But he's, he's turning the, the, the mirror back upon himself and he's, he, he's pointing out five things about his own ministry. His unpopular method his unappealing message, his unsightly mannerisms, his unconventional ministry, and his ultimate goal. Now, we only covered the first two of those last Lord's Day. His unpopular method and his unappealing message. Now, I want to briefly recap those. So, for, as for his unpopular method, look at verse 1. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom. Here we saw that Paul labored, he's, or he's laboring, to remind the, the Corinthian saints that when he came among them and preached among them, 
He did not do so according to the popular appetites of the Greek culture. When he says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, he's going back to the the initial visit and the initial ministry that he had among them. That time when the book of Acts says that they heard him and believed and were baptized. Something had happened through his ministry. But he says negatively, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, he did come bearing witness. He did come proclaiming the testimony of God. He did come proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's the only message that comes with the promise of the accompanying power of of salvation. He did come proclaiming that, but he didn't do it in a way that was meant to satisfy the, the lust for entertainment in their culture. What does that mean? Well, that means his method would have been very unpopular. We talked last week about how um, this is hard for us to grasp, and I was trying to explain this to, to, to mine this week. For us, we, we have an entertainment-driven culture. We, we, we are obsessed with entertainment. But, but to, to then tell somebody, well, in their day, the entertainment was to go and listen to someone speak well, that, that just baffles us. We've, we've gone so far to the other extreme that to, to listen to someone stand and speak, sort of like we're doing here, um, we say, I can't even comprehend how that would ever be entertainment, even though some of our entertainment lusts do creep in from time to time when we, we come into the church. But he, it wouldn't have been popular. He was a man standing, speaking, but it wasn't popular. It wasn't what people would have, would have been drawn to. And the saints in Corinth would have had to affirm that, that this was the kind of ministry that he had. He's not lying. And yet, God had blessed in the salvation of their souls. The popular conventions of Greco-Roman oratory played no part in their salvation. That was point number one, his unpopular method. Then we considered his unappealing message in verse 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here Paul reminds them that his message also was not what the culture would have called attractive. The average Corinthian wasn't looking for a message that says, Your God was hanged on a cross and you must follow Him by taking up your cross. That wasn't popular and it still isn't popular today. When he, when he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he's not saying that he only ever spoke about the events of the crucifixion. What he's saying is that in everything that he taught, the bedrock of it was a crucified Messiah. He magnified the cross of Jesus in every aspect of his life and his ministry. He preached the cross, but he also lived a life of personal suffering before them. That, that, that was what it meant to be a minister of the cross to set an example before the eyes of the people of, the, of suffering. Now from those first two points, I pointed out something that was clear to the apostle here in, in the background of what he's saying, but might not be very clear to us or as clear as it should be. And that is this, that God has chosen preaching as the method by which the church would be established and built up and His truth to go forward in the world. Preaching. See, Paul understood the importance of truth and and the role that the truth plays in, in the glory of God, but he also understood the importance of the church in advancing the truth. And this produced in Paul a very high, otherworldly view of preaching. Paul preached. If you think about, in our day, it's, it's hard to see this. It's where, where we live today, it's hard to see this. Paul preached, but he also suffered greatly. To end the suffering, all he would have had to do, stop preaching. And yet he said, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. I can't stop. So he would go into places knowing the things that he would suffer, and yet he went to preach. Why? Because he had this, this view that Christ had given him of the advancement of the truth, the role of the truth, or or preaching and advancing the truth, but also the role of the church. He went in to establish churches through preaching. 
And he refused to follow any method that appealed to the carnal flesh of men because he knew the goal in all of this is the glory of God, not the glory of a man. Now this perspective of Paul conveys to us a very valuable lesson about preaching. That was the first sort of application or takeaway from, from this section, a lesson about preaching that needs to be stated and restated in our entertainment-driven society because we can fall into this same trap of bringing a Christianized version of the entertainment lust into the church and then judging the, the church and the worship of the church and particularly the preaching of the church by the standards of our, our world. And the, the, the lesson was very simple, and that is that preaching is not meant to be entertainment. It's not an entertainment, not for any group of people. Preaching is not to be adulterated with any kind of entertainment flair for any kind of person. Now, with lots of different people and lots of different appetites, uh, people are entertained by different things. Preaching is not meant to entertain. That's not the goal. So for whatever your your appetites for entertainment might be, if you come into a, a worship setting to hear preaching... Whatever you're, you're bringing and, and calling entertainment, if the preaching doesn't match that, you're going to be disappointed. Unmet expectations. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It must not be very good preaching. Well, you've you got to step back. That's, that's a bad uh, assumption. Preaching is not meant to be entertainment. Now, that should have a major impact on what we expect, especially on the Lord's Day when we hear the Word of God preached. The preaching or the goal of preaching is the glory of God. It's to magnify God to make known the fullness of who God is from His written Word, and by that, having Christ formed in us and being ourselves transformed into the image of Christ by beholding God, by learning about who God is. So we, we, we got that from those first two points, Paul's unpopular methods and his unappealing message. Now with that being said, we're going to pick up in verse 3 with the third heading, which I've called Paul's unsightly mannerisms. If Paul's methodology and message were not enough to turn the popular opinion against him, he goes on to give us a little bit of an insight into what it might have been like to see and hear him preach. And the implication seems to be that his physical presence was probably not very impressive. Again, that's hard for us to imagine. If we're honest, that's hard for us to imagine. Because we come to the Scriptures, we come to Paul's epistles, and we read, and very often we, we, we get a lot from it. The Spirit gives us a lot from it. We're, we're taught, we're instructed, we're moved, we're sanctified as we read the things that Paul wrote, and maybe even read sermons that are preached in Scripture. And we just sort of assume... This must have been an amazing thing to see, to observe, to be a part of. It's hard for us to imagine that Paul's, this is an anachronistic phraseology, it wouldn't have actually applied then, but it's hard for us to really believe that Paul's pulpit presence probably wasn't great. Probably wasn't. We believe that it was. We believe if Paul came in here and preached, we'd, we'd listen to him. We'd amen him. We'd follow right along. We, we would be drawn in. That's what we believe. More than likely, probably not. Just by, the, by what he says about himself. We often think, how could words so stirring and so powerful not be accompanied by a pleasant form to the eyes? We recoil at the thought that maybe, or maybe the reality that if Paul came and preached among us, we wouldn't be very impressed. Even as I say that, you think, not me. Not me. If he came in here, I would like it. No, you probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't. The reality is more than likely, Paul wasn't what we would consider to be a very visually stimulating preacher. Notice what he says in verse 3. And I was with you. Notice these three words or these three phrases. In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Weakness means just that, a lack of strength or vigor, incapacity on some point. Sometimes it could be 
used for illness or, or physical frailty, weak, weakness. I was with you in weakness and in fear. Fear is the, the emotion that is experienced when we anticipate some pain or injury or hardship. We think that something bad is about to happen, so we well up with fear. Paul says, I was with you in fear. We would say, I was afraid. This, is, this would be our, Paul's words in our modern vernacular. I was kind of scared when I was with you. I was weak. I was scared. And much trembling. Bodily tremors. Maybe even uncontrollable shaking. Those are the words that Paul used under the inspiration of the Spirit to describe himself as he ministered in Corinth. Now we might, we read that, and here's what we do. We, we say, ah, oh, he's just being hard on himself. It wasn't really that bad. There's a little bit of false humility there. It probably really wasn't. It was probably really good, and he was just pessimistic. But in 2 Corinthians, he quotes somebody else or references somebody else, speaking of him as saying, this is 2 Corinthians 10.10, his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. His bodily presence, his deportment was weak or feeble. Now, if that's coming from an enemy, somebody who doesn't like Paul, we might could say, you know, they were, they were given to a little bit of excess. They stretched it a little too far, but at at the very least, they could say something like this and it gained some ground. It was carried at least to Paul's ears. I don't think it's too much of a leap to assume that at the very least, his physical deportment was not what we would consider objectively attractive or alluring. People didn't see him and say, whoa, what's going on over here? And they weren't drawn to him in that way. It wouldn't have been entertaining. As for his weakness... We do know that Paul struggled with some sort of a bodily ailment, a thorn in the flesh, perhaps, I think, associated with his eyesight. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, he said this, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus." What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now he says there that this bodily ailment, this physical thing that was happening was actually a trial to them. It was hard on them that Paul was in this physical condition. It made it difficult for them. And again, it seems like the connection is with the eyesight. They thought, man, we wish we could just pull out our eyes and give them to him because it seems like there's something wrong with his eyes that is causing us a trial. Now, if you add to that his lifestyle, constant travel, regular and often beatings and stonings and whippings and things like that, he probably appeared at least like a weak man. He was with them in weakness and fear, it says. Fear. You can imagine if your experience has been, every time I go into a city, I preach, maybe for a short time, maybe for a longer time, but eventually people show up and drag me and start beating me or stoning me to death and attack me. Well, every time you go to a new place, over, over time you're going to develop a little bit of nervousness. Like, what's this? who are these people? I don't, I don't know these people. They're all brand new to me. New faces. Is one of them perhaps a spy? Is, is one of them come just to wait for the right time to attack me? You don't know them. New faces. He begins to preach. And he says, I was a little afraid. There was a fear there. And this altogether would have probably led to or been the, the, the source of this trembling. Physical shaking, whether from nervousness or from fear, he was with them in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This, this was all, it seems, visibly obvious in Paul's preaching ministry. He was a feeble or a weak man. He was, his bodily presence was weak. He was afraid. He would shiver and quake. And again, this was not what you would have expected from the, the great orators of the Greco-Roman culture. 
They, they never let on that they were nervous, never let on that they were, they were fearful. You, you, you probably have a little bit of understanding about the, the historical Greek worship of the physical body and things like that. For somebody to be entertaining and appealing, they looked the part, they spoke the part, everything about them was nothing but attractive and soothing, and Paul was everything the opposite, it seems. On the contrary... This would have been one of those situations that most of us have been in from time to time, whether if it's little kids or adults, but you, you see somebody in a public setting, usually given some sort of public speech or talk, and you can tell they're nervous. Maybe they're singing. And they're so nervous, you begin to get n- nervous and almost sick on your stomach for them. You almost wish we could just shut this whole thing down because their awkwardness is making me feel bad now and I don't want to be here with them. It's, it's that awkward. It's probably sort of something like that. You, feel, you would have felt sorry for him, maybe, maybe hurt with him. For Paul, his mannerisms, his physical habits during his ministry among them were unsightly. They were not attractive. They didn't draw the listener in. They didn't say, I want to go see this man. I want to look at him and then maybe I'll consider what he says. Paul did not have what people wanted to see in a speaker or a preacher. His unsightly mannerisms. Fourthly, we see Paul's unconventional ministry. In spite of all that, Paul had a legitimate ministry, a real ministry among them. There's no doubt about that. The thing, what he's trying to convey to them is, is my ministry ran on completely different tracks than everything in your culture. Look at verse 4. He says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of women, uh, wisdom, rather, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So negatively, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. He, he, he names two things there that go together in, in pretty much any public uh, speech or oration. His speech, the way of communication, and then the message, the substance of what was being communicated. His words, and then the thing preached, the, the, the message that he was getting out to them. He says, neither of these were presented with plausible words of wisdom. Now, our English word plausible means skilled at producing persuasive arguments. Skilled at producing persuasive arguments. And so the, the, the word that's translated here, plausible, means just that, persuasive. Having the power to induce to action through argumentation. Paul says, my speech and my message were not that. He's saying he didn't use logic and argumentation to win the day. Now, he's not saying he didn't use these things at all. We know from his own testimony elsewhere that he he did reason with people. He he tried to use truth to convey a message to win people to what he was saying, but he didn't use these popular schemes of his day. He didn't try to use his own personal skill and logic or, or trickery to try to convince people that his message was true. To illustrate the point. The difference between true preaching and, and the other, the, the phony or the false that he's uh, opposing here, has been said to be like the difference between actual medicine and what we, we would know as snake oil. Now, actual medicine, you've, you've got a legitimate condition, you, you yourself, you know you're sick, there's this medication that helps your sickness. Somebody doesn't have to come and use very elaborate, um, uh, interwoven themes of logic and rhetoric and, and, and trickery to try to convince you to take this medicine. Or at least that's how it is for a lot of people. The flip side of that is the, the classic snake oil salesman. He rides into town. Everybody feels fine. They just walk up like, what do you got? Well, I got something for your ailments. Well, I feel fine. I don't know. And, and they would begin to try to use trickery to convince people to buy this stuff that's going to fix all of the ailments that they don't even really believe that they have. And a good salesman can sell, it to, can sell what he has to anybody. That's, that's the picture. Paul's saying, I didn't come in town trying to sell you something that you believed you didn't need. I came and preached the gospel. I preached the gospel, and through the plain preaching of the gospel, there was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
That's what he's saying. That word demonstration means literally to point out or to show forth. So this word is implying a showing or an exhibition, a, a proof. Now, there's no doubt that Paul sought to preach in a way that dis- displayed the Spirit's working and power. I don't think what he's saying is, is I walked into town and I said, I'm going to display the Spirit. Because he knew the Spirit is sovereign and the Spirit can, can work as he wills. What he's saying is, I didn't do that, but what did happen was this. A, a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. An exhibition uh, and of, of the Holy Spirit and of the accompanying power of the Spirit. So he's saying, I didn't come preaching using tricks of rhetoric to convince you of anything. I came and preached the gospel, and the Holy Spirit used the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit worked through that. It wasn't a demonstration of his rhetorical flair or skill. It wasn't a demonstration of his his pulpit presence. It was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power working through Paul in his ministry. And again... If you put yourselves in their shoes, they would have had to affirm this. Paul's actually arguing. He's reasoning here in what he's saying here. But he's, he's just using the truth. They would have had to affirm. You know what? When you came, um, you, you didn't use oratorical flair. You didn't use uh, rhetorical devices to try to trick us into anything. You didn't follow the tactics of the philosophers. You're correct. And Paul would have said, okay, well, were you actually converted? Were you edified? Were you sanctified? Were you built up in the faith? Well, yeah. Okay, then. That's his point. You see, you yourselves know that it was not the so-called wisdom and philosophy of the world which brought you to Christ. It was not those things. So why would you resort back to them now that you are in the faith? It was the Spirit working. It was not Paul's skill. It was not Paul's clever arguments. It was not Paul's delightful and attractive message. It was not Paul's stage presence. None of those had any effect on the application of the message. It was the Holy Spirit. He says, What happened among you, Corinthians, was nothing less than an exhibition of the Spirit of God working through a man to bring you to Himself and to sanctify you and to produce the fruits of life in you. God used a man That's what he's saying. So Paul did have a legitimate ministry, and it was a fruitful ministry. The evidence of his ministry would have been undeniable, and he does this even in 2 Corinthians with them again. He he turns it back on them. Look at yourselves. Are you converted? Did you really get saved? Well, then you, you can't have too much hatred for me because I was there when that happened. But they had drifted into this this doubt over time. They heard these other preachers. Time has passed, and all of a sudden, Paul's ministry is beginning to be questioned. So he's pointing it back on them. The evidence was undeniable, and yet it was not according to the wisdom of men. His mannerisms were unsightly. His ministry was unconventional. And yet, as we'll see in chapter 3, God gave the increase. Now, from these two points, we can deduce another, another truth. And that is this. God has chosen to use... Ordinary men as the vessels through which his gospel is to be proclaimed. God has chosen to use ordinary men as the vessels through which his gospel is to be proclaimed. We saw last week we have to understand the importance of truth in God's economy of revelation and redemption. The truth must go forth. We must also understand the importance of the church in advancing that truth. The church is a pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the means that God has ordained to use for the truth to go forth into the world. And we talked last week about the importance of preaching in the church's function. That preaching and teaching is central to the ministry of the word in the church. Now, all of that is astonishing, but now we come to something that is perhaps the most astonishing point of all. We're reminded here by the apostles' own admission that the vessels by which all of this is to be accomplished are sinful men. Sinful men. Or to put it more bluntly, the men given by Christ to the church to proclaim the testimony of God are sinful men. Sinful men. Now we often say, 
or here it said, God has called weak and feeble men. Well, what is weakness and what is, what is feebleness but the effects of sin upon a man, a man's mind, a man's body, a man's soul? The men that God uses are themselves sinners and their entire nature is fraught with the effects of sin. The, the corruption that is native to all sinners applies to those that God uses to preach and to proclaim His testimony. These effects are often seen when a man's mind is not as sharp as the minds of other men. We see this feebleness when a man's body can only endure so much before it needs a rest. Why? He's a man. The effects of sin are upon him. We see the effects of sin when even the strongest of men through enduring great trials and afflictions are brought low in spirit and begin to waver and doubt and unbelief and fear. Men, regular men. These are the effects of the fall. The effects of sin upon a man. And these effects, to a greater or lesser degree, will be found in every single man that God calls into His service. Even the great Apostle Paul, we, we, we struggle to really believe and imagine what it would have looked like for this man to preach. And so he calls attention to his own weaknesses. I don't think he's trying to put on a show by saying all of this. He's just saying, I'm a man. I was a man among you. He was not a, a higher level of saint than any of us. He, he hadn't attained to, to sainthood, as some would call it. No, he was a saint, and we are saints. Same, same as us. And he was not any less of a man than any of us. The Apostle Paul was not uh, divine or deified in any way. He was a man, a regular man just like us. And yet he had to confess, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He says elsewhere, a fairly well-known statement that very few actually believe. 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul is talking about himself. Now, if that's true for the great apostle to the Gentiles, the, all of these things, how much more would we expect this to be true of what we might call the, the lesser lights that follow this apostolic age? How much more would it be true for today's pastors and teachers? Surely you've heard the, the, old, the old proverb, the best of men are men at best. That's true, just men. And yet, God has chosen this means. That's what God has chosen. And God still works by the power of His Spirit through the ministry of men who minister in weakness and fear and much trembling. Now we tend to wonder, how can this be? How can, it, how, how can this happen? Rather than what ought to be our starting point, just assuming that this is the way it is. Assuming and understanding that this is the way it must be. We ask, how could God possibly work through a cracked vessel? Rather than understanding, all God has to work with are cracked vessels. That's all he has. Human beings. God never promised that he would work through the speech and message that come in plausible words of wisdom. God, we have nowhere in Scripture where God says, you know what, when I find a man who can demonstrate great rhetorical skill, I'll bless that man. Give me that man. No, God doesn't say that. When God works, and he promises that he will work, he's determined that it will, it will only be in what we'll have to look back on later and say, a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. In other words, God's only way of working through the ministry of the Word among His people is to work in a way that garners glory exclusively for Himself. He will not give the glory to any man. He won't. He can't because He's God. He must have it exclusively for Himself. And this is why He's chosen to use men, sinful men. Men who are sinners themselves and also whose entire nature suffers from the effects of sin. As he says in 2 Corinthians 4.7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses men, vessels of clay, 
so that when they break and they shatter, God wipes them off the, the, the page of time and He sets up a new one right in His place and continues working. And everybody has to say, well, the power must belong to God, not to men. And oftentimes He chooses men with many faults and many weaknesses so that the redeemed are forced to give glory to God. Sadly, many times, we don't want that. We want to be able to glory in men. You see, a man is something, and, and if, we, if we're choosing our, our favorites, well, we've got a, a lot of them to choose from, and we can always find something that, that sort of connects to our own inward boasts. I like this man because he, I can, I, he's, he's, uh, he does use lofty speech, and I can understand it while so many others don't. Well, this man believes what I believe when, when, when others don't. And we, we can find something in men that we, we draw to ourselves. And there's so many options. Whereas there's only one God. We all stand or, or kneel flatly before God. None of us has anything to boast in before God. And we don't want that. We don't want to say, you know what, it's not me. Nothing connected to me, nothing associated to me. It's all God. But that's the way God works. He will have the glory. And so he uses men with many faults and many weaknesses, just like the Apostle Paul. And so that's what he says here in the fifth point, Paul's ultimate goal. Paul's ultimate goal. Now, I've called this Paul's goal. It's Paul's goal secondarily. He got it from God. This is God's goal, God's purpose in, in using preaching and preachers as the means by which the church would be built up. He brings his argument to the same end, he uses different words, but the same thing he's already said two times. In chapter 1, verse 29, he said, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Then in verse 31, So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now he says, chapter 2, verse 5, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See what he's doing every single time. Back to God, back to God, back to God. Your, your attention's draw, being drawn away. Back to God. Rest in God. Trust in God. That is to say, God has chosen this means of working so that no one will be able to rest their faith in the effort or ministry of any single man or group of men. Paul is saying to rest your faith in Paul? That's silly. And he could say the same for Peter and for Apollos, why would you boast in men? That's what he's getting at. Why would you boast in men? Why, why, what makes you think these men have something that, that is worthy of boasting, that's worthy of parading before others, that's worthy as, as wearing a, as a badge of honor before others? The testimony of Scripture really seems to be that if these men were used by God, it probably means they were the least likely reason for boasting because God uses those that have the least in them to boast about. That's Paul's ultimate goal, to bring them back to God so that their faith would rest in God. And then that leads to the third truth that I want to point out, and, and that is this. God has chosen this means in order to garner for Himself maximum praise. God has chosen to reveal Himself through the proclamation of the truth. Truth was true before you got here, and truth will be true after you're gone. Truth doesn't change. God reveals Himself through the proclamation of the truth. God has established His churches in the world to be the pillar and buttress of that truth, to advance the truth in the world. God has ordered that the proclamation of truth be the duty of ordinary sinful men. And again, not, I'm not saying sinful as in their, their habitual public practices of known wicked sinners, but men who are sinners and whose nature is affected by sin at every point. Why has God done this? He's done this so that anything good that happens, any growth any instruction, any encouragement, any joy, any increase in faith, in hope, in love, in peace, in long-suffering, in self-control, any growth in the knowledge of God in Christ, any real effectual work that has ever taken place through the preaching of the Word of God can only be attributed to God and nobody else. That's why God chose it this way, chose to do it this way. To divide into factions over men is foolish. Because any real good that has ever come through those men has been by the power of God. Those men are sinners. 
Those men are weak. Those men are fearful. Those men are trembling. Even the men that we might see and we, we, we think they, they don't look like they're afraid. They don't look like they're nervous. If God is using them, they probably are. They're only vessels of clay. Paul's saying hope in God. Trust in God. Rest your faith down upon God, not men. That's his point. Now we've already, as far as application, we've already been given the lesson about preaching. It's not entertainment. You need to understand that. Preaching is not entertainment. But here we come to a second lesson. A lesson about preachers. A lesson about preachers. You need need to know about preaching. Most, Most people who are not preachers or in the ministry don't have shelves full of books on pastoral theology and preaching and preachers and this types of thing because it's not typically thought to be the avenue of, of, of thought of the, of the average layman or pew sitter, even though it wouldn't, it's not hurtful, but that's just typically not how it is. Preachers read books all the time about preaching and preachers and nobody else does. So here you have a lesson on preachers. There's something that you need to know. You need to understand about preachers that maybe you haven't thought through before, and that is that preachers are not mighty men. Preachers are not perfect men. Preachers are not typically towering intellectual giants. They're not. Preachers are ordinary human beings. Preachers are creatures of the dirt, just like everybody else, and they're sinners, just like everybody else. Uh, A preacher's intellectual faculties are fallen and sinful and corrupt and fading, just like everybody else's. A preacher's body is subject to sickness and exhaustion and even sinful cravings, just like everybody else's body. A preacher's soul is capable of highs and lows, of of fear and anxiety or of joy and sorrow, just like everybody else. And yet his work often takes him into a place where he's studying the highest of heights and the lowest of lows on a regular basis. Very often the preacher's roller coaster has way more highs and way more way deeper lows than the average person who's living in, in, the, in the general public just because of where his work and his studies take him. Paul was not special in any of these regards. Peter was not special. Apollos was not special. They were men. Moses was not special. David was not special. Elijah was not special. Ezekiel was not special. What were they? They were men. They were men. Finding some area where you excel and he stumbles. It's not difficult. Why? Because preachers are men. Stumping a minister or a preacher with theological questions won't be hard. It's not going to be hard. I know churches that that they'll regular, regularly do something like a Q&A and they have to say ahead of time, listen, if your, role, if your goal here is to stump the preacher, it's not going to be very tough. Don't, don't go into that. Why? Because they're men. Preachers are men. As a matter of fact, as I've gotten to know some men over the years, what I've learned is that in the eyes of the world, viewing from the, the, a world's perspective, most of them are actually subpar as human beings, generally. They're typically unimpressive. They typically lack luster. They lack pizzazz. They don't startle anyone with anything carnally impressive. They're just men. Preachers are men. And yet, that very thing is what's so precious. It's because you have to say it at the end of of a ministry, the end of a life, you have to say, how mighty must our Christ be? That he could take that kind of a man and, and shepherd a people for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years. And then when he's dead, everybody cries, you know, boo-hoo, boom, plant another one right there and just keep going. Just keep on going like the, like the guy was never there. God's powerful. Christ knows what he's doing in his church. But preachers are just men. And then thirdly, I want to give you a, another lesson for those who listen to preaching, similar or following in the same vein from last week. Remember I told you I had to split the sermon up, so I've sort of divided the, the, the applications and things. A lesson for those who listen to preaching. This is something that I tell myself regularly, and hopefully you'll understand it. 
You should not expect superhuman abilities when you're listening to preaching. Just don't expect it. It's not going to happen. Um, you should not expect dazzling intellectual surprises. Now, are you going to learn some things? Sure. But you're probably not going to be blown out of the water on a regular basis with, with, with what you're hearing. You should not expect sinlessness. You should not expect a mind that works in ways that you could not imagine. Now, you will come across these types from time to time and historically. And, and you might think, you know, what a towering intellectual. You know, so-and-so went to Yale when they were 16. Well, a lot of boys went to Yale when they were young. That was fairly, fairly common. But there were high, high-functioning uh, intellectuals historically. And, and that's why our, our shelves of, of biographies and autobiographies are usually like two, even though preachers have been in the millions and millions. There's, most people are not writing biographies about just regular preachers. Don't expect that their minds are going to work in ways that you can't imagine. Don't expect that their bodies are just going to be able to go and go and go without rest. You should never expect that his spirit never gets wounded, that he never gets low and sorrowful. Why? Because he's a human being. Preachers are men. So what should you expect? That was the question last week. What should you expect? You should expect a man. A man. And when that man doesn't impress you, you should say, praise God. I don't like to read biographies. I very rarely read biographies because they depress me. That was great that he did that. I can't do that. That was great that he knew that. I don't know that. It's, it's good to see common, regular men and even, even some, sometimes find, find a fault in a man so we can say, praise God that he uses men. He uses men. What should you expect? I think that you should expect out of any human preacher about as much as you have put into hearing him preach. The universal law of sowing and reaping applies just as much to listening to preaching as it does to any other area of life. Now, obviously, God is sovereign. And God can send a preacher to a bunch of Corinthians traveling through the marketplace and bring the gospel in power and they're converted. But in the regular week-in and week-out ministry of the Word in a church, you're probably going to get out of it about as much as you put into preparing to hear him preach. Are you praying for the preachers that you hear? Are you preparing your heart and your mind Monday through Saturday to receive the Word and then apply the Word that you hear on the Lord's Day? If you're doing that, you're probably going to reap a lot more out of the preaching than, than really any one man could ever give. When I, when I hear people say good things, positive things about preaching, I just assume that person was praying before they got here. They prepared and therefore, therefore they received. The opposite would, would be that you're saturating your mind with everything under the sun all week and expecting for this one hour on Sunday, this one of my peers is going to stand in front of me and start trying to explain the Bible and God's just going to rip the heavens open and pour out grace upon me so that I can then, as soon as the final prayer is prayed, go right back to everything I was thinking before I walked in the building. More than likely, it's not going to happen. A prayer for the preacher is a prayer for yourself. Paul often asked for prayer for himself and his fellow preachers. 1 Thessalonians 3.1, he said, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. He's, praying, he's saying pray for us, pray for the preachers. Why? So that the word of the Lord would speed ahead. Because when you pray for the preachers, you're praying for the advancement of the word. Profit comes through the preached word as people pray for the preachers. And so to pray for the preachers is to pray for the benefit of your own soul. You're praying for yourself when you pray for preachers. But again, I'll ask after having considered Paul's words here, what do you expect when you come to sit under the proclamation of the testimony of God in this place? What, what are you expecting? Think about it. You very often hear people say in pretty much any situation, you know, most problems arise from unmet expectations. I thought I was getting this and I got this. You, you get a, a, a double stack with no bacon. You say, well, where's my bacon on my double stack? I expected to be bacon on this thing. You're, you're upset all the way home. Unmet expectations. If, we, if our expectations are wrong, when we come to preaching, we're going to say, oh, man, horrible preaching. Why? Well, it wasn't very entertaining. Ah, lesson number one, it's not supposed to be entertaining. But 
What do you expect? Perhaps you expect Jesus Christ is going to come and preach to you every week, like physically. Maybe that's what you expect. God only ever had one perfect preacher. And that's who I expect to be here is, is Christ. Well, the problem with that type of thinking, and oftentimes we think that, if Jesus came and preached, now I would, I'd like that. I could get on board with some of that. Well, the problem with that type of thinking is that Christ himself is personally opposed to that. That's what he doesn't want. He said it was better that he go away, that the Spirit come, and that the ministry go forth under another method. So if you think, well, I, I think I would rather have Christ come and preach, there, there's a little bit of unbelief, a little bit of, of, fail, of, of uh, lack of submission in that, in that thinking, even though we might think it's an exaltation of Christ. Christ himself has chosen to send men as representatives Perhaps you expect Paul. Maybe you expect the great apostle to the Gentiles to show up and preach. Now, if Paul was here, I would listen to that. Well, then you shouldn't be surprised when you discover that his bodily presence is weak. He's afraid. He trembles. And you shouldn't be surprised that when he preaches for a while and, and you say, wow, that was wonderful, and you go talk to your brother and sister, and they say, man, I'd rather have Peter back. I like what Peter said last week a little better. That's probably going to happen. That's what was happening here. People have differing opinions and views. Maybe you're the type of person who expects Peter. You expect the apostle to the Jews to come and preach personally. And he might be a great preacher. He might do a good job. But don't be surprised when he suddenly withdraws to his kinsmen and begins to treat you like he didn't know you. You're sitting there eating at the table and everything was cool and all of a sudden he saw some Jews walk in and he hopped up and scurried away. And he said, yeah, I don't, I don't know what those guys... We're, we're, I don't really know them. And he treats you like he doesn't even know you. That's what he did. And Paul had to confront him for it. Why would he do that? Because he's a sinner. Peter was a sinner. But if you love Peter's preaching, don't be surprised that after the service when you get up and you say, man, I love Peter. Peter, he knocked it out of the park. And your, your brother or sister says, man, kind of an Apollos guy myself. I like Apollos. Maybe you do expect an Apollos. Do you expect an eloquent man, a man competent in the Scriptures, who's been instructed in the way of the Lord, a man fervent in spirit, a man who can speak and teach accurately the things concerning Jesus, a man who speaks boldly and powerfully refuting people in public, a man competent to show by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus? All of that was a description of Apollos. Maybe that's what you expect. Well, then you shouldn't be surprised when he knows only the baptism of John. And when some older, more experienced saints might have to come and take him aside and teach him the way of God more accurately. Man, he was wonderful. He was great. Well, you know, we had to help him out a little bit. And don't be surprised that whenever Apollos gets finished preaching and you say, wow, what an eloquent speaker, somebody else says, yeah, I kind of like Paul. I like Paul's timidity. Yeah, but Apollos, he's so bold in the public square. Yeah, I kind of like Paul's weakness and, and timidity. That's just who I'm, who I'm for. People have preferences. Now maybe you would say, well, of course I don't expect Jesus to come here physically or Paul or Peter or Apollos. I would never expect that. Well, if you expect lesser gifts than those men, then you probably ought to expect, just a, just a heads up, you probably ought to expect greater shortcomings, maybe even more glaring deficiencies, or really greater needs for prayer. Don't let a man's fallen nature cause you to forget or to stumble at the word of God. It should force you to give greater praise to God that any man would be used in his service. That any man would be used. It's natural to see the flaws in men. It's supernatural to use the flaws of men as an occasion to praise God. To be strengthened all the more in our faith in God. When Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Acts 14.27, Luke says that they declared all that God had done with them. All that God had done with them. You see, they knew all of the fruit was from God. God did some things. And they knew that the ministry of the gospel is just a tool. God did some things. With us, we were there. We, we did our job, but God did it. A minister is a tool with which God does His work. No more and no less. 
And what does that do? That Again, it forces us to rest our faith in the power of God. If your faith is in the power of God, you will be praying to precede, to enter into hearing the preached word. A lack of prayer is evidence that your faith is either, one, in a man who doesn't need prayer, or two, in yourself because you don't need the upcoming means ordained by God to grow. We ought to pray to prepare ourselves to enter into, to hear preaching, to be a preacher, to to learn from it. We're, We're usually going to get about as much out of it as we're willing to put into it, because we understand what Paul understood. Preachers are just men. We need the power of God. At the Lord's Supper, our attention goes in particular to the death of Christ and the breaking of His body and the shedding of His blood. Mark says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. As we've heard many times before, the story of the crucifixion is more than just these awful events that men could see and behold, but it was was the activity that was going on between God and the the Son of God in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That in this moment, as Christ was hanging on the cross, the Father had laid upon His Son the iniquity of His people and had had made Him to be the guilt offering, the, the sacrifice, so that the punishment that was due our sins was then executed upon the man Jesus. In the breaking of his body and the outpouring of his blood inflicted by human hands, there was also the torture of his body and soul under the very wrath of God for sins that he did not commit. They were actually our sins, but he received the punishment in him. Why? So that in him we might be made the righteousness of God, so that we could then take and as it were, stand in the place of Christ before God and be declared as righteous in His sight. Even though we are not righteous, we are sinful. This happened at the cross. This is why the cross is so central and crucial to our our faith and our salvation. Now in establishing the Lord's Supper, Christ has ensured that we remember this work of God and the work of His Son on the cross regularly. It says, as they were eating, he took bread, this is Jesus, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And so we get to see physically the breaking of the bread before our eyes as Christ's own disciples saw the bread broken. And in the breaking of the bread, we are to see and to hear and to remember what we just read, that Christ's body was broken for us in our place. But what else? That in that work, in Christ's body, there is life. We eat the bread. It's a picture of our our faith, our souls nourishing uh, ourselves upon Christ and finding life in Him and every grace in Him. That's what the Lord's Supper is meant to teach us. It's meant to turn our attention to Christ again and again. And Paul says with this warning, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. 
when we come to the Lord's table, we are to consider and remember that it is a very serious thing. That we're not coming to expect some magic from the bread or the cup. We're not expecting something magic just from the motions of eating and drinking, but we're expecting, we're assuming that as we bring our minds to rest upon what Christ has done for us, that Christ, through that act, offers Himself and gives us nourishment to our souls. And if we come with any other mindset, especially one of, of selfishness as, as was happening in Corinth, we've come wrongly. It's about Christ. As we'll say, we'll read here in a minute, in remembrance of me. He says, in remembrance of me. It's not about us, it's about him. So as the elements are passed, let's turn our attention to Christ and then we'll come to the table together.